All right, we're good. All right, new series Sunday. Who's ready? So we're already winning because you have more energy than 8.30. So that's great. So that's good. I need energy. I'm going to feed off your energy. And I'm happy you're here. Are you happy you're here? Yeah. All right, so here's my, uh, it's new series Sunday, which we're kicking off a new series, which is uh, fitting. And, and I, you'll see why it's fitting here, hopefully. It's, it's going to be a roller coaster, okay? We're going to go from uh, fun to not fun to more fun. So enjoy the ride, all right? So here's my question for you on this new series Sunday as we kick off. My guiding thought this month is simply this. Uh, what drives your joy? What drives your joy? Now, uh, I know that many of you who maybe follow Jesus, believe in Jesus, or uh, know that Jesus is always the answer when asked anything in church, you want to say Jesus. Jesus drives your joy. And I appreciate that. I accept that. Uh, bless you. I receive it, Okay. If we could just move past the Christian answer and into the honest answer, could we do that? Yeah. Because here's what I'm saying. Uh, I, I would tell you, you know what doesn't drive my joy? The news. Now, now here's what I mean is, is I, I will tell you that, that like, I know that the joy is found in the Lord. I, I know that. I think you know that. I'm not here to, to tell you something you don't know. I, I think we all understand that. But, but what happens when... It isn't working. I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay, so uh, we've been planning a trip to the Holy Land for over a year. And, and I can't help but turn on the news and, and like, it, I don't want to say depressed. I don't want to be that dramatic, but I'm like, I'm bummed. Like, what does it mean? And, and I say that because, well, you know why I say that. And, and, I, and I turn on the news and, and, I, and I just, I get more depressed. I, I get more, more frustrated, and I'm like, what, what are you doing, world? What are, what are you doing, Lord? Because you just come back now. Right? I find it interesting, and I just, one comment, and, and I don't mean it in jest, I mean it intentionally, but, you know, I don't have answers. I don't. I would just ask that you be people of prayer. Uh, but here's what I would tell you is that you just have to pray unceasing, unwavering, and you have to pray intentionally. Because here we are in a world where not only do we have the Ukraine-Russian conflict and everything and the baggage that that comes with and it means and, and life and, and not a political statement. I'm just saying, whoa. Now you have Israel and Palestine. And, and again, I just, again, I, I'm anti-terrorism. Please hear that. I am anti-terrorism. But the answer to terrorism cannot be kill more people than they killed of yours. That does not move the needle in the world towards peace. What else I am not against, and, and again, because those could feel like far away places, so let's bring it back in. It's political season. And yet we had a whole bunch of people cry against the fact that terrorists killed babies, yet it's on our ballot this season. And because we term it different, we, we get to have different opinions about it. And so I would just tell you, pray, church. Vote. Pray. Vote. But what drives your joy? Now, why I ask that question is because Scripture tells us, in fact, this is the most famous verse in Nehemiah, which we have to unpack Nehemiah at some point because it's just so rich. But there's this guy who's rebuilding a, a wall to protect the temple that they just got done rebuilding. And he, in the middle of this, he throws a big party because celebrations are important because we're a party people. 
And he tells these people, you need to go do this, you need to go do this, and then he tells them why, and I want to show it to you. It's in Nehemiah 8.10. It says, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. So joy equates to our strength. And I say all that to say, what drives your joy? Because I'm not feeling very strong right now. And why is that? Now, this is an interesting test because I began to answer that question for my own life. And, and this past week, we celebrated my wife. Uh, she turned 40. And that's a big deal because uh, it's old. <laughs> um, listen, I'm not 40 yet, so I just get a small window to say that to her, okay? I had to take it. I don't believe that. But it was an interesting thing because my wife, when she turned 26, she entered a bout of depression. And, and upon further examination of why, she's like, well, I didn't plan my life after 25. So you made it to 40. We should celebrate. <laughs> But we threw her a party and she didn't know about it. Well, she did. Uh, it was meant to be a surprise, but I'm a wise husband and I knew that, you know, on my best day, a surprise party full of unmet expectations is not fun. So I said, surprise, I started planning to help me finish this so it's what you want. <laughs> and it worked. It worked. So husbands, go for it. But here's what I will tell you. I, I ask the question, what drives your joy? And then I talk about my wife's party is because what I found is what drives our joy is usually what we make room to celebrate. We draw attention to it. Uh, my, my, my children right now, right? I'm one of the parents right now who I received the Amazon kids Christmas catalog and promptly put it on the fridge. Because what used to be a beautiful thing that we'd look over together and they would give me some inkling of what they wanted is now a demand hostage list. <laughs> and I, I forgot my kids were here in the service this last at the 8.30 hour, so now I have to find a new hiding place for it because I told them where it was. But, but my whole point is my son, is he, he goes, Dad, can I have this? I'm like, well, are you asking for it? He's like, yeah, put it on my birthday list. I'm like, okay, birthday list five-year-old, or Christmas list, because Christmas next. He's like, Christmas? Is it tomorrow? I'm like, no. He goes, I'll put it on my Christmas list. But yet then last year, he held accounts, and he's like, hey, I circled all these things in the Amazon book, but I didn't get them all. <laughs> and he wants that. So I, again, what drives our joy is usually what we make time to celebrate. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to an accidental party. I actually don't believe accidental parties happen. I think parties are something that we labor over, we save for, we prepare for, we plan for, and we invite people to. And usually the success of a party is how well we did the prep work for it. Now I tell you all this is because we're talking about parties. We're talking today and this next couple weeks about the series of feasts found in Leviticus chapter 23. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to be there today. And I know that these feasts of this Old Testament book, you might go, but what does it have to do with us today? Well, that's the whole point of the series. We'll find out together. But what I do know is that they have to be prepared for. They have to be planned for. They have to invite people. They're, they're things that don't just happen. They're things that you make room for. And in that, I believe that what we celebrate, God accelerates. Now, I want to unpack that a little bit because I think what we choose to draw attention to, what we choose to celebrate, we then continually look for. Case in point, I want to celebrate with you that we had 28 first-time visiting families last week. That's amazing. I want to celebrate with you that 11 people said yes to Jesus last week. How amazing is that? Now, here's the deal. What I'm wanting God to accelerate is that he would entrust us with more people who need him. And we would usher them into his presence. 
that we would have more prodigals looking to come home, looking to wake up in the midst of their filth and go, this isn't working. I got to try something else. And they would go to church because that's what the church is about. I want people to come home. I want lives to be restored. I want lives to be transformed. I want people to be in heaven, meaning I want heaven bigger and hell smaller. That's the reason we exist. And that's what I want the Lord to accelerate. What I found, though, is that what drives our joy is often temporal, what is, is often uh, menial. It doesn't really move the needle in the big picture. And if we're honest, it's very selfish. But here's my question for you. Do we think that's a new problem? No, it's not. But thank God we don't serve a God who isn't still speaking today. And thank God we have the word of God who is more relevant now than ever before. Amen? Okay, respond. Amen? Amen. All right, beautiful. All right, so let's jump into this. Uh, I want you to turn to Leviticus. It is one of the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's one of the first five books of the Bible. Most Jewish people would have to memorize the first five of the books of the Bible by age 12. How are you doing? Leviticus is often quoted as being the boring book because it is all about holiness. It is a book about teaching a bunch of guys and, and a bunch of families and a bunch of women who started following this God called Yahweh, the great I am. And they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to worship him. So the book of Leviticus is this blueprint of how we worship Yahweh. More importantly, it's a blueprint of how we orient our lives to worship Yahweh. And so what we find in Leviticus chapter 23 is a list of festivals that teach us how we should orient our year to celebrate, worship, and respond to Yahweh. But before I get in there, I just want to read one passage of scripture in the New Testament. Uh, I feel like I have to, and it's for multiple reasons, but it's found in the book of Colossians. You don't have to turn that. I'll be on the screen. I just want to say this really quick. It is written by a guy named Paul. Paul was a religious zealot. He was a nut job. He was a terrorist who thought that killing Christians was the answer. Sound familiar? Killing people who worshiped God thought it mattered. And the Holy Spirit met him where he was at, transformed his life, and he became the single greatest mission, missionary, church planter of the early church. And we're here because of Paul today. Jesus, and then what Paul's work of Jesus was. Why am I telling you that? Pray, church. Pray for Israel. Pray for these terrorists. Because these religious zealots, if they know the truth, imagine what they would do for Jesus. And do we not think he can transform their hearts? Pray for that. Pray for life change. But I want to read what he wrote to the church in Colossae, which was a church much like ours, facing a lot of stuff happening and trying to navigate. And look what it says. And now, just as you accepted Christ as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. This is a tie-in for last week. Let your roots grow down into him and let the lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong, right? Good soil produces good fruit. Are we planted in the right soil? Pastor Nobles did an amazing job last week, didn't he? Right? So we got to get rooted down in the right things. Don't let anyone capture your empty or capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. Insert the news. <laughs> that come from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world rather than Christ. Are we orienting our hope, our contentment, our joy and what we celebrate in scripture or what we perceive in the world and human thoughts? 
God made you alive in Christ, verse 13, for he forgave your sins. He canceled the record of charges against you and he took away them by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. Thank you, Jesus, that we are not behold to rulers and authorities because he disarmed them. And ultimately he will have the last say. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat, what you drink, or for not celebrating certain holidays or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these are rules and only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. I'm gonna read that last verse one more time. Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat and drink for not celebrating on certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these are rules and only shadows of what is to come. Why did I read all that? It's very simple. I'll put it on the screen for you. We are under no compulsion to celebrate the feasts we're about to study. No compulsion. In fact, the feasts are fulfilled by Christ. What I don't want to do is throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that's why we're going to study him. But it is not a but statement. Hey, uh, we're under no compulsion to celebrate the feast, but we should anyway. It's not a qualifying statement. I do not know English well enough to come up with a better word, but here's what I'm trying to get to you is while yes, we're under no compulsion, if COVID taught us anything, it's this. The majority of narratives I have with people that are newer to our church or who have coming back to our church from COVID, this is what they say. We were going to church, life was good, then COVID and sports, our beds, brunch, football, and we just haven't been back to church in a while. We need to. My point is this, is while we don't have to celebrate feasts, we don't have to orient ourselves to what we're about to learn. If we don't allow scripture to orient our lives, something else always will. So for you, it might be your kid's athletic season. It might be football season. All the tailgaters are not here. They're tailgating. It might be baseball season. It might be, I just found this out and I'm like so intrigued. I like have to go. There was a, uh, at the IX Center, they had like a cat show. All these people are just posing with cats and I'm like, what? What do you do at a cat show? Andrea, can we go to a cat show? I don't know what drives it. But if you don't allow scripture to drive your season, <laughs> the world always will. That's my point. All right, so what can we learn from this Old Testament? What does this book of Leviticus and specifically chapter 23 have for us today? What does it have for us? These expressions that we're about to read, these holidays, uh, note are God's holidays. They belong to him. In contrast to man's holidays, they are quite literally the feasts of the Lord and they are on his terms at his invitation and in them we enter and we receive their benefits because he invites us. So that's really important. These aren't just man-made things. These are God-ordained. So are we ready to study these feasts and find out why we are a party people? Can I get an old school amen? amen. All right, you're with me. Good, good, good. Here we go. Leviticus 23. We're going to kick off in verse one. It says this. The Lord said to Moses over 3,500, almost 4,000 years ago, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as the official days of holy assembly. 
The Hebrew word translated feast right there means appointed times. These are times that God set in motion because he cares. The idea that the sequence, the timing of each of these feasts have been carefully orchestrated by God himself, each is part of a comprehensive whole. What am I trying to communicate to you? What we're about to study tells a story. It paints a picture. It orients your life into what God is up to in his world, which is ultimately the world we're invited to live in. So they have something for us today. Verse Two, you have six days each week for ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day and a day of complete rest, an official day for holy assembly. It is the Lord's Sabbath day and it must be observed wherever you live. Not geographically, not, oh, I'm, I can't do it this week because I'm on vacation, or I can't do it this week because work is busy, or I can't do it this week because it's tax season. I can't do it this week because of insert whatever. What am I communicating to you, churches? Maybe the United States wouldn't be the number one prescriber of anti-anxiety and depression medicine if we actually listened to the Lord and took a day off. But, but why is that important? Because these feasts are built on the foundation that we actually know how to rest. The word that's used in that is the Hebrew word Shabbat. It means to stop. It also means to delight. When is the last time you stopped what you were doing? for 24 hours and you delighted in what God is up to. Maybe a little bit rhetorical or maybe you need to have a conversation this afternoon with your wife, your girlfriend, your parents. When's the last time you slowed down and leaned into what God has for you? That's this dual idea of stopping and taking delight. Why is it important? Mark one of the disciples of Jesus followed Jesus for three years recording what he said. He records Jesus saying this in Mark 2, 23. It's on your screen. He says, guys, guys, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What does he say in church? He's saying, hey guys, uh, the Sabbath isn't for God. God gifted us the Sabbath for us. So what is that that he gifted us? Well, I want to I share some words from a very wise modern day theologian, John Mark Comer in his book, The Garden City. He says this, Sabbath is an expression of faith. Faith that there is a creator and he is good. We are his creation. That there is this world. We are his world. We live under his roof. We drink his water. We eat his food. We breathe his oxygen. So on the Sabbath, we don't just take a day off from work. We take a day off from toil. We give him our fear, our anxiety, our stress, our worry. We let go. We stop ruling and subduing and we just be. We remember our place in the universe. And what is that place? There is a God and you and I are not him. When's the last time you took a Sabbath? Because if you were to follow God's plan, it should be once a week. But here's what I'm telling you. Parties, celebrations, Sabbaths in which you stop and you take delight, they don't just magically happen. If you think things just happen, just show up on Thanksgiving and expect something to happen. My wife is like, the other day we're going for a walk and I'm walking the dog and she's like, hey, can we talk about Thanksgiving? I'm like, yeah. She's like, hey, I think we should use this pan for this. And I'm like, who's coming? What are we making? I'm not even to the point of what pan I'm going to use. 
where are you? My whole point is, is that's the burden of work. It's October. I'm saying, I don't know what my kids are wearing for Halloween, but you know what pan you're going to use to cook this. This is interesting. The Sabbath is the practice of Sabbath is the foundational building block of the seven festivals of God. If we do not first begin with the Sabbath, we will never fulfill the purpose of the feast. We're only three verses in. Here we go. We got 44 more. We'll see you tonight. I'm just kidding. Verse four. In addition to the Sabbath, these are the Lord's appointed festivals, the official days for the Holy Assembly that are to be celebrated at the proper times each year. All right, let's have some fun. We're going to try some new technology. It worked at 830, so chances of it working now are slim to none. Okay. Oh, I see it. We're, we're there. We're almost there. My God, believe in you. I'm cheering you on. My God. My God, my God, my God. Oh, we're there. Okay. So we're going to have some fun. And, and see, look, look, check this out. Oh, nope. Oh, Micah, what'd you do? Oh, it is user error. Okay. User's back. Here, ready? Okay. Now it's real user error. Oh, Okay, can you see it? All right, we're good. All right, so let's have some fun. All right, technology. All right, so here's what I want to do. Uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to unpack these fests. And, and so, yes, there's 44 verses, but I would rather show you uh, pen to paper what it is. So you can take notes on, and I want to tell you, we're going to look at a 30,000-foot view of these feasts, and then next week, we're going to unpack four of them, and the week after that, we're going to unpack three, and I'm going to show you why we're doing that. But here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to remind you of something. When we read the verse in Colossians where Paul says, hey, don't worry. Don't let anyone condemn you on what you eat or drink or whether you celebrate these feasts or not because they are only shadows of what is to come. They're only shadows of the Christ that you know. I, years ago, I went to uh, Ethiopia on a missions trip and I did some other, I kind of just ran a whole bunch of trips into one. And nonetheless, I was gone from my wife for like 30 days. Not smart. But I remember the expectation and the anticipation of coming home. Husbands, can I get an old school amen? amen? Right? I remember being on the plane and sitting here going like, oh my gosh, what is she going to be wearing? What is she going to smell like? Because I know what I smell like. <laughs> what are we going to do? What am I going to do? And I remember like, what was it like to, to hug her? It's been 30 days. And I remember when I saw her, it was this embrace and it was like this flood of emotions of what I didn't realize I could miss because I had never been away that long before. Why am I telling you this is because I want you to understand these feasts, if they're shadows, they tell us a story that, that while yes, we, we can see some illustration in scripture of what it is going to be like, some of us need to experience what it is to really celebrate the goodness of God in the land of the living. And these feasts start by pointing us to what has happened and yet to what will happen. Here's what I'll talk about. Here's the seven feasts. We have Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Atonement. Each one of these feasts point to a greater story in Christ. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came under the covenant of new promises, a new life. What does that mean? Is that each one of these feasts pointed to something that has already happened or something that will happen. 
The first four feasts happen in the spring. That means these right here, which is found in verse 4 through 23, happen in the spring. If you're a note-taking time, feel like jump in on this, right? This happens in the fall. And these are verse 20, 24 through 44. Each one of these feasts points to something else. I'll give you an example. Passover is this feast that is celebrated in the spring. It is a reminder of what God did to the Israelites when they were leaving uh, Egypt because they were enslaved. And, and ultimately, he sent Moses to, to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he kept doing these plagues and plagues and plagues. And then God said, okay, that's it. I got to do the big one. I got to do send an angel of death. He says, so here's what I want you to do, Jewish people, Israelites. I need you to paint your doorposts with blood over and on the sides. And when my angel of death passes, the firstborn of every living thing will die, except the angel will pass by the houses that have the blood. By the blood of an innocent lamb, you will be spared. Does that sound familiar? Because wasn't it in the New Testament that Jesus came, I am the perfect lamb, and I've come to die that you may have life? And it's by his blood we are saved. What does Passover point to? It pa Passover points to the cross. Then you move to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. What is it? It's crazy. Uh, Jewish, <clears throat> so excited, sorry. Jewish people today, they take yeast and they spread it all over their house in every corner. It's like a junior hire with flour. It just gets everywhere. And then they spend the rest of the day cleaning it up. What does it point to? It points to this fact that sin permeates every aspect of our life. And it spreads and it grows out of control. And the person who knew that sin and the devil could grow out of control and the gates of hell have to be pushed back was Jesus. And so what did he do after he died on the cross? He went and conquered the gates of hell through his burial. Three days he was down in Sheol making things right. Then we get to the Feast of First Fruits, which again, these were an agricultural society. These were people who were harvest. They understood that in the spring, two things happen. Crops sprout up and baby animals are born. And so the Feast of First Fruits was then you brought the first of your crops and as a sacrifice to the Lord, which is saying, hey, you're in control, not me. I'm gonna give to you first. So they would sacrifice their lambs, and their grain offering, and they would throw this big harvest party because the Lord had sustained them for another winter and was going to feed them for another year. What sprung up from the ground that changed everything? The resurrection. I probably just spelled that wrong. So just write resurrection and spell it right. Okay. Then we have the Feast of Weeks. Feast of Weeks is, is a real unique one where time gets delayed. But what's crazy to me is right after the Feast of First Fruits to here, this is 50 days. You know what happened 50 days after Christ conquered the grave? He said, I'm going to send one who is going to sustain you in every way that will empower you when I am not here. When I'm sitting at the right hand of the Father, this gift, one who is better than I will come and sustain you. Well, who is he talking about? The Holy Spirit. The week celebrates the fact that God's sustaining force is still very much alive. Yet what Jesus did fulfilled on the cross right before Passover, what happened 50 days after when he ascended to heaven is the Holy Spirit came and it changed everything for everyone. And it became the, the power of force of the spreading of the good news in the early church. And the church in Israel, the church in Jerusalem grew so fast 
I think it's hilarious. People, I don't like mega churches. Well, you wouldn't like the early church. It started with 12, grew to 3,000, then from 3,000 in a little over three years, went to 256,000 people. That's the power of the Holy Spirit and the good news of the gospel. Come on, church. Then what happens is we move to the fall. After you work, you spend your summer laboring in the fields, taking care of what God's given you. And there's all these things and what you can't do. Don't touch the corners of your field. Keep, keep that for people in need so that they can pick their own food and they can take care of themselves. Do this, do this. And then the fall was this reminder with the Feast of Trumpets that sin must be accounted for. And what happens in the Feast of Trumpets in the fall is what we get in this word right here, the rapture. Someday the horn will sound, the heavens will open up, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And God's people will be taken up to be with him. What happens next is this atonement. And in atonement is you have to account for your choices. In that atonement, we find the uh, tribulation. It's the point where we're with God before he comes back to earth. And in that tribulation, uh, it's like a wilderness season. People are wondering. I had some gentleman go, he goes, wait, will the Jews be saved? And I say, here's the goodness of God. Yes, I do believe the Jews will be saved, but you want to know how they're going to be saved? Is because when the rapture comes, here's a group of people for thousands of years who have been trained on the ways of God, the practice of God, holding out to the hope of God, hope of a Messiah to come. And then they're going to realize they missed it, but they're going to have all the knowledge and evidence to lead everyone to him when all the Christians aren't here because God set order in their lives. And they're gonna fulfill that order over the period of tribulation. And then my favorite feast, this is my favorite. If I could preach on this one, this is the best one. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And what it represents is when they were in the wilderness, they were wandering. It's this time where you camp, you sit under the stars and you remind yourself of what God sustained you with when you had nothing. But here's what the Feast of Tabernacles will be fulfilled in the new covenant. It's going to be uh, the new earth because ultimately God is going to come back and he's going to tabernacle with us. And once again, his presence is going to sustain us. We will not hunger. We will not thirst. We will not work. We will not toil. We will not worry because the all sustaining force for the rest of our lives, all of eternity will be the fact that God is with us and we will be sustained by his glory in a new heaven, a new earth. And that is the Feast of Tabernacles. So check this out, ready? Oh, 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 oh. There we go. So how does this work on a big scale? In the beginning, God set the world into motion. He made male and female. He gave them his spirit. He breathed into them. He said, I want you to go. And then there was this fall and then God came and he said, I'm going to give you these commandments. I'm going to teach you how to worship Yahweh. And, and basically up until the cross, we've lived in this thing called the law. What sustained us was our religion. But religion couldn't save us. Even on our best days, if we followed all the rules, it wasn't good enough. And so Jesus sent his son for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, he stepped out of heaven and he made a way where there's no way and he did it through the power of the cross. It's odd, but we have a cross on our stage. How many uh, thousands of years ago, how many people do you think would have a Roman uh, torture device on their stage? 
let me put that in perspective is it's weird that we have an electric chair on our stage. But yet what we have the power in that cross is that God conquers the grave. Jesus is greater than our death. He conquered sin. And so on the cross, he did what we couldn't do. He made a way where there was no way. And in that, he went down. And three days later, he went up. And then 40 days after that, 50 days after that, he descended. He said, hey, I'm going to give you something else. And right here, we had this little blip with Jesus. And it was awesome. And then he went and they said, no, no, no. And he goes, no, it's not my time. I'm going to go and I'm going to sit at the right hand of my father. And someday I'm going to come back again. And when I come back, I'm going to come back for good. And it's going to be the biggest party you could ever imagine. But until then, I'm giving you a gift. And that gift was the Holy Spirit. And so what we see right here is that is what the culmination of the spring feasts are. What happens next is the day that we live in right now, which is the church. We are living in the church days, the harvest generation, the day in which we share the good news of the gospel. We watch lives change. We see people get saved. We disciple them. We do the good work of our father. We are part of an expanding kingdom of God. I love what God says in his word. Jesus says that it's a forcefully expanding kingdom, that the gates of hell will not prevail, but ultimately the trumpet will sound and he will come back. And when he comes back, he's going to take us with him and we're going to start this new period that is atonement. And then one day, a thousand year reign, he's going to come and he's going to say, hey, party's now going to begin. And heaven is going to scrape earth and there's going to be a new earth and we're going to reside with him. And this will be the rest of eternity is a new heaven and a new earth. What I'm telling you is this right here. Is the spring feast fulfill what happened? And the fall feast point to what will happen. For 1,500 years, 1,500 years, God's people were sustained not on the rhythm or the news or the, the joy or the pain of the moment. They were sustained by the following of orienting their minds to what Christ will do and what he will do again. So what does this have to do with us? Well, let's wrap it up. Three things the book of Leviticus teaches us. And again, I need, you need to come next week because we're going to unpack the spring feasts. We're going to show each what practice they did, why it matters, the coolness of it, the depth of it, how it points and how Jesus is a fulfillment of what they waited and longed for. And then the week after that, we're going to do the fall feast. And there's a word on the street that we're going to be blowing shofars. So you should just come because who knows what that means but it's going to announce that Christ is coming again. And when he comes again, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it's going to be awesome. And that's the series. But what does it have to do with us now? Well, here's my question. I started it in the beginning. What drives your joy? And if you don't allow scripture to drive the fulfillment of what you long for, what you party for, then we will be fickle, selfish people who forget why we exist as we long for the Savior to return. So here's some things we could do to orient our hearts and our minds in the meantime. We should party more. We should party to rest. If you aren't Sabbathing, you should probably start Sabbathing. 
And here's what's required in a Sabbath is you have to plan for it, you have to prepare for it, and you have to make it happen. Because if you just expect it to happen, guess what never will? Your rest. John Mark Comer, he has this practice every Friday when the sun sets, cell phones get put away, TV gets turned off, they prepare a massive feast, they have people over, and they celebrate And then in the morning, they get up and they take a walk as a family. They do an activity and they do not allow the digital world to reappear, to turn on again until sundown on Saturday night. And every Saturday, every week, they intentionally have a time of family. Now I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if I could do that. I'm not advocating that you do that. What I am advocating is that if you don't party to rest, You don't plan to rest. You don't prepare to rest. You'll never rest. So what does rest look like for you? What does it look like for you to stop and to take delight that you are not God? And how little you matter in this big picture and how good he is in the big picture. Number two, we party to celebrate. There are things in this life that we should celebrate. And birthdays and Christmas, they're cool but we should celebrate what God did for us on the cross. We should celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit. We should celebrate things that we want to be evident and accelerated in our life. Do you party to celebrate? And here's the thing. Not all parties are parties like the world. Can I I tell you? You know what my favorite parties are? Funerals. I know, right? Now I gotta be really clear. There's a big asterisk to that. You know what's not fun? Doing a funeral of someone you don't know if they know Jesus or not. That's not fun. That's weird and hard. But one of my favorite things that I got to do this year was do the funeral for my father-in-law. Why? Because he knew Jesus. I got to celebrate his faithfulness and everything he wasn't, but he was because Jesus is that good. I got to celebrate that it wasn't goodbye, it's see you later. I got to honor his legacy. I got to share stories of, of interactions. I got to talk about how we used to go to restaurants and, and he, was, he had to always be doing something. And so I went to the bathroom and came back and he had cut every dinner roll and buttered it. And he's like, here, I did all the work for you. <laughs> and my germ freak was like, no, what'd you do? But that was his generous, he helped even when you didn't need help. That was the goodness of my father-in-law. A funeral is to celebrate and honor a gift that someone was to you. We party to celebrate the goodness of God and how he gave us gifts of people. And the last thing is we party to remember. We party to remember what Jesus, my favorite service that we do is Good Friday. Nothing about it is fun. We somber reflect that Jesus stepped out of heaven and went on the cross and died for us. But listen, if we didn't honor and remember what he did for us, there would be no Easter. And what makes Easter so beautiful is Good Friday. As we leave in the darkness and the wonder of going, man, what would it feel like to think that you hope the person that you put all your faith in just died in front of you? To long and to pray and to wonder and feel like you're confused for three days, only to find him three days later, he conquered the grave and he's like, I'm back. And I'm ready to do everything to change the world necessary because not even hell can stop me. That's what makes Easter special. But we have to remember not just the good things, but also the bad things. 
Why do we Sabbath? Why do we feast? Why do we have these intentional convocations with God? Again, I want to read a quote from The Ruthless Elimination Hurry by modern-day theologian John Mark Comer. He says this. I'll put it on your screen for you. Ultimately, nothing in this life apart from God can satisfy our desires. These feasts found in Leviticus, they help us to remember our place in God's promise. Why? Because tragically, we continue to chase after every desire ad infinitum. The result, a chronic state of restless, worse angst, anger, anxiety, disillusionment, depression, all of which end up leading to a life of hurry, a life of busyness. We think if we only could do more, that would solve it. And in that life of busyness and overload, we turn to shopping and materialism and careerism, a life of more, which in turn makes us even more restless. And the cycle spirals out of control. Church, how do we break the cycle? We break the cycle because we can look at scriptures because it's not a new problem. And we can go back 1,500 years and go, what did they do? Ah, they let God orient their life. For 1,500 years, God had the Israelites act out his plan of redemption. Act out every step of his miraculous sending of his son throughout the year to remind them that they're not God and he is. And in that, they feasted, they celebrated, they partied, they remembered, they rested. And the fact that God would do what he said he would do because, church, we are people of the promise. People of the promise. The one command in the New Testament scripture is for us to remember the Lord every time we take communion. To remember the Lord's covenant. We're going to take Holy Communion today. If you did not get the elements, just wave your hand. One of our ushers will run it to you. But can I tell you, we take communion. We remember because we are people of the promise. And because we are people of the promise, check this out. It's on the screen. We cling to what he has already done. And we look forward to what he will yet do. So let us celebrate. Let us party. Church, if you have your elements, I'd ask that you take the bread. And I love this. Scripture says, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus, the hope of the world, the nothing else that we sang about, on the night that he was betrayed in front of his friends, his closest confidants, his closest followers, the people that went to war with him, the people that were pushing against the gates of hell with him, he looked them in the eye and he goes, guys, this, is my, this piece of bread represents my body that is going to be broken for you. And they're like, no, 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 Jesus, we're on top. And he's like, you don't know what I know. You do not know what the days ahead look like. I am going to be broken, but I'm going to be broken for you so that you may be made whole. So today we remember the body that was broken that gave us our wholeness. Would you take the bread? A little while later, the end of the meal, after a feast, after a celebration, after being full, you know that weird time before dessert when you're just like, I need to lounge. I need to open up my belt. I need to turn on the TV. Jesus says, oh, we're not done, guys. And he held up a cup. And he said, this is the cup of my new covenant. 
It represents the blood that is going to be poured out for you. The blood that is ultimately going to be what covers every mistake that you ever made. The blood that will ultimately save you is what I'm about to do on the cross. I'm about to pour out my blood so that you may have life and life there more abundantly. Today, we remember the cup of the new covenant. Would you take? Church, the most fitting thing that I could do for you today, other than preach God's word, is to orient your heart to what God, what matters to God. And while yes, the feasts do not save us, what we are learned in Leviticus does not do anything for us except to orient our hearts to the one who does everything for us, which is Jesus. And I'm excited to study that with you in the weeks to come. But can I just draw your attention to the one key truth we know today in taking of Holy Communion? The most fitting thing we could do today is sing one song. For whatever reason, we sing this song once a year. But today we sing it because the lyrics meant something 400 years ago. They meant something 1,000 years ago. They meant something 2,000 years ago. But I don't think we fully understand that they mean something today. Because while, yes, people prayed that Jesus would come back then, can I tell you, when I look at the world, when I look at the Holy Land right now, I just sit here and go, Jesus, will you come again? Will you come again? Will you bring the healing and the hope that you so promised? And I can remember what he did. And I cling to the promise of what he will do. But I also got to tell you, church, our job is to usher it along. And so today, may we orient our minds to ushering it along. Would you stand as I pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to party. We get to be people who party. We party to rest. We party to celebrate. We party to remember. We party to orient our lives to what you've already done and what you will do yet again. So Father, we sing, we declare, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, because nothing else will save us. So Father, we give you this time and everything about it for your glory, your kingdom, we pray. Amen, amen.